tonight we're going to be bouncing around a few scriptures. I'm going to ask that you start with me in Matthew 26, uh, but we'll finish probably in John. Uh, we'll be looking at Matthew, a little bit of Mark, a little bit of Luke and John uh, as we look at those who met Jesus. Those who met Jesus. Beginning in Matthew 26, those who met Jesus. The American Heritage Dictionary defines a legal trial as the examination of evidence and applicable law by a competent tribunal to determine the issue of specified charges and claims. Now, if that's the case, then nothing that Jesus went through qualifies as a legal trial. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and was brought to appear before the chief priests and the scribes where he was tried, if we want to call it that, for his claims to be the Son of God. The Jewish Supreme Court of the day, known as the Sanhedrin, viewed this, this claim to be the Son of God, as blasphemy. And before hearing any arguments, they already declared and decided that Jesus must die. Jesus was also questioned by Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time, who was told by the Jews that Jesus had made claims to be a king. The Jews tried appealing to the Roman governor in hopes that he would do what they couldn't, and that is to execute Jesus. But Pilate was smart enough to know that the Jews were only bringing Jesus to him uh, because they envied him, and they were flattering him when they claimed, that, uh, claimed to have no king but Caesar. And Pilate knew that Jesus, or that the Jews rather, hated Rome, especially the governor, because he is Rome's representative. Uh, Rome had encroached onto Jewish land and forced the Jews to pay Roman taxes. So he, he knew that there was a, a mutual hatred between him and the Jews and the Jews of the Romans. But Pilate obliged, and he questioned Jesus. And he found no fault in him. But the persistence of the Jewish mob was so overwhelming that they ultimately prevailed. Not wanting to be guilty of putting an innocent man to death, Pilate decided that he would wash his hands of the matter, and seeking to please the Jewish mob, he released a notorious criminal named Barabbas and condemned Jesus to be crucified. Now, throughout these events, starting with the arrest of Jesus back in the Garden of Gethsemane, leading up to his crucifixion, there were a number of different people that met Jesus, who had an encounter with Jesus. Some questioned him, some mocked him and ridiculed him, some physically abused him, but what we see is that majority of them all rejected him. In the hours leading up to the cross, Jesus went through one illegal trial after another until he was finally and ultimately rejected by the nation of Israel. So let's take a closer look, though, at those who met Jesus that night leading up to his crucifixion. But first I want you to notice the conspiracy, the conspiracy. Everything seemed to get started with one man, and that is Judas. Judas conspired with the chief priest to have Jesus arrested. You're open to Matthew 26. You should be. Follow along as I read verses 14 through 16. Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? 
And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. When Jesus was with his disciples in their upper room, as they were observing the Passover feast, after having washed their feet, he told them that one of them would end up betraying him. None of them had a clue who Jesus was talking about. Not even after Jesus gave them a clue. In John 13, verse 26, Jesus said to them, he says, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And then Jesus proceeded to give to Judas Iscariot. And listen to what we read in the following verses in John 13, 27 to 30. The Bible says, And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. The Bible says that Judas went out and betrayed Jesus that night. And I submit to you that it has been night for Judas ever since and will be night for the rest of his eternity. As we saw here in Matthew 26, Judas bargained with the chief priests. He covenanted with them, the Bible says there in verse number 15, for 30 pieces of silver, which they probably paid him after Jesus was arrested in the garden. And then we're told that he promptly returned to them after he realized what he had done and he went out and hanged himself. Judas did the chief priests a favor, though, because they had long been wanting to kill Jesus. The Pharisees and the religious leaders didn't like Jesus because so many reasons, but mainly because he took away their popularity. Jesus was the talk of the town with all of his miracles and all the impressive teachings and all this popularity. It relegated the Pharisees and the chief priests to the shadows and out of the spotlight. They knew something had to be done to get back to that almost celebrity status that they had among the people. And they knew that something had to get done to remove Jesus out of the picture because he was the main focal point of the people's attention. They just didn't know what that thing looked like to get Jesus out of the picture. They needed the people's favor because you can only be popular if people like you. So they had to make sure that whatever they did against Jesus, whatever they did to remove him out of the public eye, it needed to be, to be done legally, or at least it needed to appear to be legal. They needed to find proper cause to arrest Jesus so that he might not be labeled a hero, but rather a menace to society, thus causing the attention of the people to shift off of Jesus and back onto those who arrested this menace the Pharisees and the chief priests. The first mention of the Jews' desire to kill Jesus is seen earlier on in Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 14 when Jesus healed a man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath day. And listen to what the Bible says, Matthew 12 verse 14. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. The overall impression of the religious leaders at this point was pretty low. They basically had two high priests during this day, Caiaphas and his father-in-law, Annas. 
And Caiaphas was a Sadducee who didn't believe in the resurrection of the human body after death or even in the existence of angels. And when Jesus was delivered to Pilate, the Jews refused to enter the Roman government building, the Bible says, so as to not defile themselves by entering into what they viewed as a pagan facility. They were more concerned with upholding religious practices rather than speaking the truth or even allowing an innocent man to have a fair trial. Fortunately, Pilate could see right through them and knew that they only wanted to kill Jesus out of envy. And we see this if you turn a page over to Matthew chapter 27, maybe two pages over, to Matthew 27 and verse number 18. As Jesus is brought to appear before Pontius Pilate, we see that Pilate is able to see why it is that he's actually there. In Matthew 27, verse 18, it says of Pilate, for he knew that for envy they had delivered him. He knew that for envy they had delivered him. Nothing mattered. No matter how carefully they watched Jesus, the Pharisees and the chief priests and all the religious leaders of the Jews, no matter how much they watched Jesus, no matter how many attempts they made to trap him and what he said or what he did and how he reacted to different situations, how cleverly they questioned him, they could never find anything to condemn him. Everything they threw at him, hoping that maybe one thing would stick, nothing did. The Jews, therefore, were pleased. And relieved to have Judas come forward. One of the, the inner circle of those that were around Jesus. Opting to betray Jesus because he then solved all of their problems. When Jesus was arrested, he was taken first to Caiaphas. He was then taken to Annas where the soldiers abused him before he was returned uh, to Caiaphas. This was nothing new though. The ones who should have known better were corrupt and really only looking out for themselves. When you look back throughout the history of the priests for the nation of Israel, you find corruption from the very beginning. The first high priest was a man by the name of Aaron, Moses' brother. And his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, were not the best as far as priests were concerned because we read about them being killed by the Lord after they offered strange fire before the Lord, which the Bible tells us God had specifically commanded against. During the reign of King Ahaz in Judah, during the days of the divided kingdom, the king Ahaz, he visited Damascus where he saw a pagan altar that he greatly admired. So much so that he came back and he instructed his high priest Uriah to go and construct an altar that looked just like the pagan altar that he saw in a pagan temple. And he asked Uriah to construct it in the temple of God. And wouldn't you know, Uriah unfortunately did just that, moving aside God's altar in the temple to put in place of it this pagan altar that he loved so much. In the days of Nehemiah, we read about the high priest Eliashib who allowed the enemies of Israel to actually have a dedicated space in the temple of God. There was a, a, a chamber room that he allowed enemies of God, non-Jewish people to come in and actually set up shop and live and store all sorts of stuff in. To the point that when Nehemiah found this out, he came and he threw them out and he threw out all the belongings with them and restored the chamber for the purpose of the Lord. And Nehemiah also had to deal with one of the sons of the high priest who had married a pagan woman and allowed all sorts of idolatry to creep in. 
In the first two chapters of the book of Malachi, we read about how unfaithful the priests of Israel were and how their sins literally stood as a wall between them and God and God's full flow of blessing upon the people was blocked. Now, as guilty as they were, and this is just a few examples of how corrupt the priesthood was in the early days, even to what we're seeing here in the days of Christ, where they were only supposed to have one high priest and somehow they had two. During the days of the intertestamental period, with the close of the Old Testament and before the beginning of the New Testament, the, the high priest basically became a position that was sold to the highest bidder. It was originally a position that you only had if you were a Levite and then a, a Levite of the Levites. It wasn't just anybody. You had to be a specific line of the priest to even be considered for this position. But during those days, between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, it was so corrupted that they were selling the office of the high priest to the highest bidder to the point where you basically had two guys doing the job of one, showing just how corrupt it really was during Jesus' day. And as we think about that, I got to thinking, as guilty as they are, is it any different than what we see happening in churches today? Are we as obedient as we claim to be? None of them, none of the, the priests that I mentioned and we, we referenced here were thinking that they were doing anything wrong. In fact, in all that they were doing, as sinful and as wicked as it was, they were still claiming to be honoring God. The Pharisees, who we probably align closest to with regards to who, who, who there is in, in the New Testament and, and who we are most like, they were convinced that they were honoring God in all that they were doing in, oppose, in opposition to Christ. And I, I got to thinking just how much in the name of religion we do that is actually disobedient. It doesn't take much to go off course. A little compromise is here and there, and before we know it, we're no different than some of these religious leaders during Jesus' day. And again, in all honesty, if, if there's any group that we do closely resemble, I think it's the Pharisees. I think that we, we, we call ourselves religious, we call ourselves godly based on certain things that we do. We're attending church, we're reading our Bibles, we're appearing, at least on the outside, to be godly and to be holy, but oftentimes, we're very hypocritical by how we're living the rest of our lives. And I'm not pointing the finger because they say if you point one finger, you're pointing three or four back at yourself. I'm just as guilty. But under the guise of religion, we can be often more worldly than the unsaved. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were upset with Jesus because Jesus uncovered all of their disobedience. Jesus shed light on things that they were hoping would never come to light. Everything they thought was hidden was now being revealed and opened up for all to see. When they had arrested Jesus, that seemed to be the beginning of their success. In John chapter 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, at that point they are dead set against Jesus and so convinced that the death of Jesus is actually, actually going to be to the benefit of the entire nation, they say there. They're so convinced that killing an innocent man is actually going to prove to be beneficial to the entire nation. This is how skewed their beliefs are. When they'd arrested Jesus, they thought that things were going to start looking up for them. But then we read this in Luke chapter 22 and verse 52. Turn, turn to that passage, Luke 22 
and verses 52 and 53. We're going to bounce around, so bear with me as much as possible. Luke 22 and verses 52 and 53. Jesus has been arrested by this point. Judas has betrayed him. And notice what it says in these two verses, Luke 22, 52 and 53. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The conspiracy against Christ seemed to be initially successful, but anything wrought by the hands of Satan is ultimately going to fail. Even though the council would decide that they would turn Jesus over to Roman authorities to have him crucified, they would still not be victorious. As much as it appeared that Satan was winning this battle against Christ, all of this was playing out exactly according to God's plan. Jesus did not suffer a loss at Calvary, but a victory. We're told in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 13 and 15, it tells us exactly what happened at the cross. It says, this is Apostle Paul speaking to believers. He says, And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he took it out of the way, nailing to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Jesus did for us what no one else could do. Whitney, as you mentioned, he settled the debt completely. Every bit of our sin was fully satisfied. We sometimes sing about it this way. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Satan thought he was victorious when he watched Jesus breathe his last breath upon the cross, but what Jesus actually did was win a huge victory there at the cross by destroying sin, nailing it to the cross. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, the debt that we had built up for ourselves from when we were born to when we were eventually breathe our last breath, all of that, which was contrary to us, which was keeping us forever separated from God, he took it out of the way, it says, nailed it to the cross, spoiled principalities, all powers, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Everything he did at the cross was a victory, and no way did he suffer loss. The devil was defeated there as much as he thought he was victorious. We see the conspiracy. But secondly, I want you to notice the compromise. The compromise. You're in Luke 22. Look one chapter over to Luke chapter 23. The, the one main thing that Rome expected of all of their governors was that they maintain peace and unity wherever they were positioned. At the time of Jesus' arrest, there were many visitors that were coming into Jerusalem to observe the Passover, which made the job of the Roman governor, who was Pilate at that time, so much harder. Jesus was arrested at night. He went through an illegal trial, which should have never taken place at night at that time to begin with. 
He had a trial before Caiaphas. He had a trial before Annas. And then in the very early morning hours, they drag, him to Je- they drag Jesus to Pilate, who was woken up having to deal with this Jewish delegation calling for the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And when you read through John chapter 18 and John chapter 19, you find Pilate making at least seven different moves. He does seven different things. He's, he comes and he goes because the Jews, as I mentioned, they wouldn't come into the Roman government building for fear of being defiled. So Pilate had to do everything. He goes in, he talks to Jesus. He comes back out and he tells him what he said, that he's finding no fault in him. He goes back out, talks to Jesus, and he's just back and forth and back and forth. Not just physically, but he's dealing with this mentally as well. He makes it very clear that he doesn't want to make a decision on Jesus. He was a true politician because rather than doing the right thing, so many politicians do the safe thing and safe for them. The Jews were smart enough to know how to deal with Pilate. And they knew that he wouldn't be influenced with a theological argument. So that is why they accused Jesus of being a political troublemaker. You're open to Luke 23. Look at what it says in the first two verses of Luke 23. It says, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. It's interesting because I never remember hearing Jesus say anything to this, to this extent. But they used three key words, the Jews did, to get Pilate's attention. They knew how to appeal to them. It wasn't a theological argument, but some very political language. They used the word tribute, they used the word Caesar, and they used the word king. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Their statement about tribute and Caesar was a complete lie. For if you... Turn a couple pages back to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20 and verses 21 to 25. You'll see just why this was a lie. In fact, Jesus was encouraging people to do the opposite of what they claim. Luke 20, verses 21 to 25. Notice what it says in this passage. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly. Neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. They accused him when they brought him before Caesar in chapter uh, 23. This man, he is perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. What an outright lie. They're lying through their teeth to say anything but the specific thing for this man, Pilate, to find him guilty. They've tried everything on their end. Nothing has worked. So they need to appeal to someone else who is a higher power at that time in that land. And they speak using specific language that is going to hopefully sway this man to act in their favor. 
When Pilate then asked Jesus about what kind of a king he was, and Jesus told him that his kingdom was not political, Pilate immediately knew that this king was no one for him to fear. And the more that Pilate questioned him, the more he found Jesus to be completely innocent of all accusations. And then he thought he found a loophole when he discovered that Jesus was from Galilee. He's thinking, finally, I don't have to be the one to make a decision on this man who I don't want to make a decision on in the first place. The man's a Galilean. He doesn't fall under my jurisdiction. You need to send him to Herod. And so Jesus was sent to appear before Herod. And, and back in Luke 23, look at what it says in verses 6 through 12. So Pilate thinks he's found a loophole, sends him to Herod. And notice what it says in verses 6 through 12 here in Luke 23. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. For he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. So Herod is glad to have Jesus in front of him. He's heard all sorts of stories about what Jesus has done, and he's hoping that maybe he's going to be entertained by some incredible miracle. He asked Jesus all sorts of questions. It says that Jesus didn't even answer a single word. Herod's men proceeded to mock Jesus, to ridicule him. They throw some fancy robe on him and send him back to Pilate. And we're told that from this encounter, there in verse number 12, Herod and Pilate, they restore a broken relationship and they become the best of buddies. It's interesting that the world is united in loving sin and rejecting Christ, ridiculing even those who belong to Christ. When Jesus returned to Pilate, he tried another strategy, though. Still in Luke chapter 23, notice what we see in verses 13 through 17. So now Jesus has been returned to Pilate. Look at verses 13 through 17. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I have examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod. For I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. Pilate couldn't have been any clearer that he had no intention to make a decision on this. He didn't want to be part of this. He was hoping to have this matter done and just behind him as quickly as possible, but nothing seemed to silence and satisfy the Jews. Because notice what happens in verses 18 to 25. He tells them that, listen, there's no fault in this man. He's completely innocent. I questioned him. I sent him to Herod. He questioned him. There's nothing. None of these accusations are valid. I'll beat him and I'll send him out. And notice what it says in verses 18 to 25. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. 
And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Pilate, we're told, would then have Jesus scourged, which was one of the worst punishments that a person could ever receive. He would put a robe on him, a crown of thorns upon his head, doing everything he could to please and satisfy the demands of the crowd. It didn't matter that Pilate had declared Jesus to be innocent. He compromised. He compromised and he gave in to their demands in order to make his own life easier and sentence an innocent man to death while releasing a career criminal. As we think about how things are today, I think we find that things often stay the same. The world constantly chooses the guilty criminal while rejecting the innocent redeemer. Nothing has changed. The only difference is the names and faces are different. The heart of man continues to reject the Messiah who brings peace, who brings joy, in place of following after that which only brings disappointment and eternal ruin. When it comes to believing in Christ and following after him, there is no compromising. There is no substitute. The sad thing for Pilate is that had he actually followed his instincts, he would have done that which was right. But he followed his heart instead, which led him to pleasing the people and compromising on his own convictions. Pilate learned the truth, but most likely it was too late. Pilate tried to avoid Jesus at all costs. He, he couldn't, though. He fought his conscience and did everything he could to try and wash his hands of Jesus and the entire matter once and for all, but he failed. I want you to notice third, the compassion. The compassion. We've looked a little bit at Luke. Turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And let's look at verse number 16. John 19 and verse 16. John 19 and verse 16. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. So Jesus now faces the difficult march to the cross. He has been scourged, he's been beaten, he's been humiliated. All the illegal trials were over. The questioning was complete. No fault had been found in him. He's being marched to his death. The innocent had been declared guilty. The reason why Jesus never objected to any of the treatment was not just a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah 53, but also because Jesus' hour had come. It wasn't that the Jews had finally trapped him. It wasn't that they finally just kept throwing things against him to see if something would stick, and finally something stuck. It was that Jesus had done all that the Father had wanted him to do, and now it was time for him to lay down his life that he might take it up again. He wasn't going to the cross against his will. He was willingly going to the cross on behalf of the men who were mocking and ridiculing him. In fact, we're told in verse number 17 there in John 19 that he even had to carry his own cross. Again, it says in verse 17, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is, in, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Golgotha. I know we were just looking at Luke 23, but turn back with me to Luke 23 and notice what we see in verse number 26 because Luke gives us 
another little bit of information with regards to what happens as Jesus carries his cross and is marching towards Golgotha. Luke 23 and verse number 26. It says, And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. The Bible says that Simon was from Cyrene. This is a city in Africa, west of Egypt, roughly 800 miles from Jerusalem. Simon was a faithful Jewish man who had come to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. This was a, a feast that was held once a year where Jews, to observe it, needed to be in Jerusalem. So regardless of where you lived, if you lived right outside of Jerusalem or if you lived 800 miles away and you were a faithful Jew, you were going to be in Jerusalem for the week of the Passover. So Simon traveled the roughly 800 miles from Cyrene there in Africa, west of Egypt, to be in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. He's a faithful Jewish man, but he had no idea that he was going to enter the city of Jerusalem and come upon what he came upon here, as we see in Luke 23 and in John 19 and in Matthew 26. He had no clue that it would be such a terrible event, but a crucial event. True discipleship. Is not just found in reading the Bible and praying and coming to church. True discipleship involves publicly identifying with Christ. Now, hours prior to this encounter that Simon had with Jesus, Peter was boasting in front of all the other disciples as they were together in the upper room that he would follow Christ to the ends of the earth, even if it meant going with Jesus unto his death. And strangely enough, Peter is nowhere to be found as Jesus is marching, carrying the cross on his own shoulders to Calvary. It should have been Peter that we read about here in Luke 23, 26. That as they led him away, they laid hold upon Peter, who was said he was going to be there, and he carried the cross for Christ. Instead, we read about a man named Simon. Simon, who traveled probably 800 miles to be where he is, thinking he's come for religious purposes, and now he's having to identify with Christ. It should have been Peter but we read about Simon instead. Now, Mark chapter 15, verse 21, tells us a little bit more about this man, Simon. Turn with me there. Mark chapter 15 and verse number 21. It's really awesome as you put the entire picture of the Gospels together because each Gospel account has pieces of information that are all part of one giant puzzle. And when you put all the pieces together, it's an incredible picture that comes out. Mark 15 and verse 21, it says there, and they compel one Simon a Cyrenian who passed by coming out of the country, and notice this, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bury his cross. Why is that important? Why do we have to know two of his kids' names? Well, let me take you on a little detour for a moment. Alexander and Rufus are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. And if they are indeed the sons of this Simon, which I believe they are, if they are, it would be really awesome. We're told of Alexander in Acts chapter 19. We're told about Rufus in Romans chapter 16. And we're told of them that these were true believers who were known and appreciated in the days of the early church. I want you to notice what we're told about Rufus in Romans chapter 16 and verse 13. Paul is writing, and he says, Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and get this, and his mother and mine. 
So the Apostle Paul greets this man Rufus, who I firmly believe is the son of this Simon of Cyrene. It's mentioned in Mark 15, verse 21. Paul greets him. And his mother, who would have been Simon's wife, who evidently ministered to the Apostle Paul in some capacity. Because Paul says, greet him and his mother and mine. This woman, he says, was like a mother to me. Now, I know it's speculation, but entirely possible that Simon of Cyrene not only carried the cross of Christ, but was also a believer in Jesus and went home and led his wife and his kids to the Lord as well, to the point that they're mentioned later on in Scripture as being appreciated and ministering to the Apostle Paul. Now, Simon had come to Jerusalem for religious purposes, but I believe that he left with spiritual life in Christ. He was probably not too thrilled at the thought of having to carry the cross of Christ. In fact, we're told each time he's mentioned that he had to be compelled to do this. It says again in Mark 15, 21, and they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, to do this, to bear his cross. Each time he's forced to do this. He's not volunteering. He doesn't run to the aid of Jesus and say, let me be the one to do this. He is compelled to do it by the people that are there. He had come for religious purposes, but I believe he left with spiritual life in Christ because I don't think he was thrilled at the thought of having to do this. Now think about this. This man was a faithful Jew. He traveled some 800 miles for a religious observance, happens upon the situation in which he has really no clue as to what's going on, to what extent it's happening. And from his perspective, a criminal is being ushered to his rightful death and now he's being asked to carry the cross of this criminal. Not many people would line up and volunteer to do what he is doing here, especially when the crowd is calling for this criminal to be crucified. They weren't awaiting sentencing. There were no more arguments to be made. It had already been decided that Jesus was to be crucified. So from the perspective of every other Jew who wasn't part of the chief priests and the Pharisees who knew what was going on, from the perspective of every other Jew, Jesus had been found and accused and deemed guilty of some heinous crime that was worthy of him being crucified, that he would be numbered with the transgressors and die in the worst way possible. No one's volunteering to do what we see here. In fact, most of the people were probably thinking that Jesus deserved what he had coming to him. And he deserved to carry his own cross the entire way to Calvary. Because they didn't know any better. I don't think that Simon viewed this as a great privilege to be the one carrying the cross. Not initially, at least. But I believe he viewed it more as a curse to be associated and to be forced to be associated in the least with someone who, believe, who he believed to be a criminal. But what may have been a humiliating experience for Simon of Cyrene turned, I believe, into a great blessing for him and his entire family. Back in Luke 23, turn with me again back to Luke 23. I want you to notice what we read in verses 27 down through verse 31 because we read about a group of women who were among the crowd of people that were following behind Jesus as he was being led to Calvary. And these women were weeping and lamenting him. 
Verse 27 begins in Luke 23. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? We're not told that these women that he's speaking to were believers, but at the very least, they were there to offer some sort of encouragement to those that were grieving. It speaks to the heart of Jesus that he heard these women weeping. He stops and addresses them with a sympathetic heart. His message to them was very simple. He says, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. I'm doing my father's will. Weep for yourselves, he says. Weep for your children. Because the things that you're doing to me, as bad as you think they are, things are going to get so much worse for those who are unbelieving. And the image that he speaks of there in verse number 31, where he says, For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? The image of, of the green tree and a dry comes from an ancient saying, which Jesus used to give some very spiritual prophetic lesson. For over three years... Jesus had a public ministry in and around Jerusalem and Israel where he taught all sorts of lessons, did so many different miracles, all of which evidenced his deity. He had been sent to the house of Israel, but for so many reasons, the Jews um, didn't want him, even though they were richly blessed by his presence. And unfortunately, the Jewish leaders widely hated Christ and widely rejected him, demanding that he should be killed. Now, if, if God allowed his only begotten son who in the context of what he says here in verse 31, is the green tree. Jesus Christ is the green tree. If God allowed the green tree, his only begotten son, to be killed, what would he do to those who were actually guilty and specifically guilty of rejecting Jesus Christ and having him crucified? Jesus was comparing the unbelieving Jews, the Jewish nation, to the dry tree that deserved to be burned up. And sure enough, roughly 40 years later, we're told that Titus and the Roman army fulfilled that prophecy when they marched right up into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and many women and children suffered severely. Jesus had previously spoken of this coming judgment a few chapters earlier in Luke chapter 19 and verses 41 to 44. He said this. He said, And when he was come near... He beheld the city and wept over it. This is right after his triumphal entry. Instead of giving a speech, he weeps over it, saying in verse 42 of Luke 19, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. They should have known. They should have known. He says he came for them. He came to redeem them. He came to gather them and they rejected him. And so he spoke of the future judgment that was going to come. They should have known that judgment was coming and prepared by running to the Lord in faith, but unfortunately, many perished in that horrific day, not just physically, but eternally. And so Jesus wept over the thought as he spoke those words in Luke chapter 19, 
And I'm sure there was great agony and concern in his voice as he reminded these women and anyone else who could hear in Luke 23 about what they had coming to them if God would allow a green tree, him, Jesus Christ, to be killed when the dry tree deserved it. Well, now we've looked at a number of people that Jesus met. Judas was so close to Christ but sought to please himself and ended up losing everything. Pilate had opportunity to believe on Christ but opted to please the mob and deliver Jesus to be crucified. And everything that Jesus did, he always pleased the Father and brought salvation to all who would believe on him. Now even today, the world continues to reject Jesus and asks for Barabbas. The world rejects those who follow Christ, just as Jesus said would happen in John 17, verse 14, where he said, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, thankfully, no matter how much we as believers are hated, may, be, may even be rejected by the world, we're never hated and we're never rejected by God. The world may live to please uh, themselves, but we may live to please the Lord. Jesus knew what the Father wanted him to do, and he pleased the Father. He pleased the Father even though it meant humiliating himself, subjecting himself to ridicule and torture as he paid the ultimate price for our salvation. I get to wondering whether or not we thank him enough for all that he has done as often as we should. Do we pray for believers across the world that are standing up for Christ in his sufferings? More Christians have been martyred since the start of the 20th century than in all centuries combined. Jesus told us that the world would hate us just like it hated him. Don't be surprised when it eventually hits closer to home. Are we prepared to stand for Christ even when rejection and opposition are pushing back at us? Many who were close to Jesus, as we've looked at, ended up pleasing themselves when the pressure was turned up. I pray that we might boldly stand for Christ, not just when it's convenient, but even when everyone else may be standing up against us. We might make a mess of things, which we're all bound to do, but may it never be that we fail to stand with the one who willingly took all our sin and proudly marched to Calvary to offer himself as the redeemer of all who come to faith in him. Would you bow with me in prayer at this time? Lord, we thank you that we have your word to fall back on. We thank you, Lord, for the record of what your son endured for our sake. And Lord, I know we just talked about a number of different things tonight and looked at briefly what your son endured for us. I pray, Lord, that we would understand that there is great victory in Jesus Christ and what he has done as we come to him in faith. Lord, remind us of that, reassure us of that truth, and help us to live in light of that glorious victory that we have in him. In Christ's name we pray, amen.